All right, so Psalms for Beginners, lesson number six. We're going to take a look at penitential, penitential Psalms. Uh, just one little review item that I'd like to uh, go over as we begin. The types, remember we said there are the, the 150 Psalms contained in the book of Psalms can be broken into nine different types. There are more than just nine, although uh, some are just you know, one of a kind. But usually these nine groups, wisdom, nature, word psalms, penitential psalms, worship, suffering, assurance psalms, psalms of praise, and royal psalms. Good to know this because a lot of times when people think about the psalms or you know, talk about the psalms, they automatically think that all psalms are praise psalms because so many of them are, but there are many different types. So last week we looked at the Psalms that praised and marveled at the beauty and the sureness and the power of God's word. Those were word Psalms. Tonight we're going to look at the fourth category, penitential Psalms, penitential Psalms. So penitential Psalms are Psalms of individual lament, except in many of them there is a confession of sin on the part of the writer, on the part of the psalmist. Uh, There are psalms where the author sees that his own sins have contributed to the problems that he is facing. These psalms, or these problems rather, can be illness or uh, enemies, situations, not always just sickness. Sometimes somebody's in trouble because of what, it, what they've done. So these problems, uh, the writers are asking God to remove them and at the same time asking for forgiveness for whatever guilt, uh, whatever participation they've had in creating the problem to begin with. In the penitential Psalms where this is the case, the author readily admits in coming to God that God is a God of mercy and kindness. In other words, they begin with the idea, I know that you are kind and merciful, that's why I'm here. So that's one of the features of these type of Psalms. Often the term steadfast love is found in these Psalms. It's used and it refers to that quality of God's nature that continues to love and forgive without regard to the response that God receives from us. In other words, the love that God extends while we may be separated from Him by sin or indifference or ignorance. Steadfast love means He keeps loving us even when we stop loving Him. That's a quality of His love. And that's one of the reasons why we have the courage to come to Him to begin with, to ask for forgiveness, because we know He'll receive us. Even though we've fallen away or been indifferent or whatever the case, we know that He continues to love us. So that gives us the courage to to come back. Now in some of the penitential Psalms, the writer declares that he has to suffer in spite of his innocence. And what he's asking for is a reprieve from God. In one of the Psalms, the author challenges God to curse him if he's not innocent. In other words, if you see that I'm guilty of something, you go ahead and curse me. That's how sure I am of my innocence. And I want to give you just one verse. That's Psalm uh, Psalm 7 that goes like this. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, 
If I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him without cause uh, was my uh, adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then Selah, Selah, remember it's either a musical notation or the um, encouragement to, for the reader to stop and consider what has just been said. One of the things about this particular psalm and this verse and the attitude in it is it's a lot like Job. Isn't that what Job was saying to God? What have I done? I haven't done anything wrong. Go ahead. You know? Let's have a trial. Job says to God, let's have a trial. Let me put my case before you. I'll prove to you that I'm innocent. So kind of a, we, we see the echo of Job in this particular psalm. Now the penitential psalms usually follow a script, you know, a pattern. Three steps, which are the following. Usually begin with a cry for help because the individual is sick or a cry for forgiveness because the individual is aware of their guilt of some sin or some transgression or a cry out for rescue. I'm in trouble. I need help. So usually begin that way. Uh, just, like the, just like the wisdom psalms usually begin with the author saying everybody listen to what I'm going to say. I'm going to give you some wisdom now. Pay attention. They start like that. Well the, rest, the penitential psalms start with a cry for help. All right. Uh, then a statement of condition. In other words, let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you who my enemy is. Let me tell you what I did wrong. Okay? And then the third is an appeal for help and this time renewed in a more specific form. At the beginning it's just a cry for help. At the end usually the author um, uh, explains what it is that they need. You know, I want better health or I want the destruction of my enemy or I want cleansing, whatever that is. Although some psalms see the author as an innocent victim, most penitential psalms recognize the relationship between the sins of the author and the sufferings that he is experiencing. So these psalms are appeals to a forgiving God for removal of sin and the problems attached to them. So there's a little bit of background about these, this type of psalm. Now let's look at some, examine some of them, see how this works out. We start with Psalm number six, verses one to five. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? So we begin Psalm 6, uh, Psalm 6 rather, a cry from a sick man. A cry from a sick man. The cry for help for a sick man. The expression how long, very interesting, appears over 50 times in scriptures. 16 of those 50 times it appears in the, some of the Psalms. And so this man here sees his illness as a sign of God's displeasure in him and he seeks forgiveness. That's a scary thing. When you think that you're sick because God is mad at you, and we think you know, this was written you know, several thousand years ago, but human nature hasn't changed. How many times does something bad happen in our life? And the first thought is, 
uh-oh, God, you know, God is punishing me for something that I did. So human nature doesn't change, and we see that in this here. Uh, this man believes that he is dying, and he's afraid of dying with God as his enemy. And I like the plea, you know, I said, hey, save me, because if I die, who's going to praise you? <laughs> I can't be praising you if I'm dead. All right, verses six and seven. He says, I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. See the synonymous parallelism there. I make my bed swim, dissolve my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. So he describes his weakened and sickly condition and the sad state of his soul. He's depressed, he's afraid, and he is sad. Verses eight to 10. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. So in some way God has heard his prayer and he knows it. And this is what he has been asking for, a sign of some kind that God hears him and has not turned his back on him. Perhaps he's received some kind of reassurance from a priest or a, one of the prophets telling him that he's going to be okay. Perhaps uh, he's been healed. You know, it's not an answer to a prayer. Dear God, I'm sick this way, please you know, let it be over. And then all of a sudden it's over. His enemies, you got to read between the lines here, his enemies apparently were rejoicing in his illness and accused him of wrongdoing as the cause. Again, doesn't that sound like Job? Job's friends come to him, they're silent for you know, a while, and then when they begin to talk to him, to quote, encourage him, what do they tell him? Now Job, you know why you got all these problems? You have all these problems because you've done something wrong. You've sinned somewhere. So why don't you just cough it up, acknowledge what you've done wrong, and all of this will go away. And how does Job answer? No, I haven't done anything wrong. That's when he says, let's have a trial, you know, me and God, and I will state my case, and so on and so forth. Well, it's kind of the same thing in this psalm. All my enemies, he says, will be ashamed and greatly dismayed because they were wrong. God has heard my prayer. Now that he has been vindicated, he says, they're going to be ashamed of themselves. They're going to be ashamed of themselves for having thought what they were thinking about me. Okay, so there's one psalm, one penitential psalm. Let's look at Psalm 143. That's another penitential psalm. This is a prayer for deliverance from enemies. Nothing to do with illness here. So it begins in verse one and two. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplication. Again, synonymous parallel, parallelism. Hear my, hear my prayer, give ear to my supplication. Same idea, repeated twice. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. So he begins with a cry for help, an acknowledgement of unworthiness, and a request for a merciful hearing despite this. You know, he says, I'm not worthy to come before you, but I'm here anyways. I know I'm not a perfect person, but I'm here anyways to ask you for something because I know that you're a merciful God. I know that you're a God that'll pay attention to me. 
So it isn't because you know, we've been righteous that we can appeal to God. It's because He's kind and merciful and He's willing to listen to us. How many times have I heard people say to me, well, there's, you know, I'm just too far gone. I'm just too far gone. You know, I've been a drunk most of my life you know, and uh, you know, I, I quit three months ago, but I mean all that wasted time. You know, I, I destroyed my family. My wife left me. My kids hate me. I've got cirrhosis. Of the, you know, I'm just, there's no point to it. And the mistake there is that individual somehow is transferring his personality onto God. Because what he's saying is, if I were God, I wouldn't talk to me. But we're not God. He's not like us. You know, that steadfast love. He keeps loving us no matter what. Verse 3, 4. For the enemy, here he gets to it, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. So here's his situation. He's surrounded by the enemy, crushed. He's defeated. He's discouraged, bordering on despair. And his fear is about to overwhelm him. Imagine. Have you ever been that afraid? It renders you like in a bad dream, right? When you have a bad dream, somebody's chasing you. You ever had that dream? Somebody's chasing you and all of a sudden your legs are like, they weigh 10 pounds, to, uh, 10 pounds. They weigh, they weigh 1,000 pounds. You know, your, your, your legs are like lead. You can't, and, and people are catching up to you and then you wake up. You know? Well, this guy, he's not dreaming. This is exactly how he feels. Now, David faced a real enemy in Saul, who had him surrounded and nearly killed many times. So he could relate to this. Verse five and six. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Selah. So he, he, he explains the trouble he's in. Then he thinks back to the good old days in the past. He knows that God has helped him in the past. Remember, David here is writing. How did did God help him? Well, with Goliath, with the bear, with the lions that he killed. And he thinks on this. And in modern application, it helps us to renew our faith, to remember how God has treated us in the past. Verse 7 to 12, he renews his appeal for deliverance. So watch, we'll do them one at a time. Verse 7 and 8, answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk for to you I lift up my soul. So he appeals that God's favor not be taken away. Not just the fear of dying but the fear of dying without God's favor. Everybody dies. We have to accept that. But he's, it's not just dying he's afraid of. He doesn't, want to be, he doesn't want to die without God's favor on him. In other words, he doesn't want to be lost. In verse 9, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. So he appeals for deliverance strictly from his enemies, from his physical enemies. No metaphor here. He's actually afraid of enemies. Verse 10, 
Teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Again, an appeal for an opportunity to serve God and obey Him. And perhaps the thought that hmm, maybe I haven't been obeying. Maybe I haven't been doing what's good. Maybe I haven't been doing what's right. And this is the reason that I'm in this kind of trouble now. And so he's saying, you know, if you help me, if, please help me. And, and I, I get it. I, I understand why I'm here. In the future, you know, I'm going to walk the straight and narrow. <laughs> you know, It'd be nice if everything we did in relationship to God was done because we appreciate how wonderful and loving He is. But you know what? Fear is okay. It gets the job done. To be afraid of what God will do to you, to be afraid to be lost forever. I mean, it's not the highest and most noble reason to do God's will. But like I said, it gets the job done. I mean, think about your own children. You you, you want them to obey you because they love you, because they see the reasonableness of what you're telling them to do, because they know you want only the best for them. But if all that fails, you better do it now or else you know, I'm counting one, two. You know. Fear works. Again, not the best motivation, but it gets the job done. And then in verse, uh, verse 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So notice what I've been trying to do here is show you all the appeals. Verse 7, appeal for God's favor. Uh, verse 9, appeal for deliverance. Verse 10, appeal for the opportunity to serve God. Verse 11, appeal for peace of mind and joy. And then in verse 12, and in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. The final appeal, the destruction of his enemies. And we'll talk about those kind of imprecatory psalms where you know, the, the writer is saying, you know, my enemies you know, take their children and bash their heads against the rocks and kill them. You know, I mean, you're reading this, you're saying, what? All right, uh, Psalm 51. Again, I'm just giving you samples of these type of psalms and the mindset behind them. So Psalm 51, so we've looked at psalms, uh, uh, penitential psalms, a cry for help because a person is sick. Then we looked at a penitential song, a cry for help because the person is surrounded by enemies. And he finishes it by saying, destroy my enemies. Okay? Now another penitential psalm, Psalm 51, this is a sinner's prayer for forgiveness. Now interesting, the background about this particular psalm, psalm written by David. This psalm was written as a result of David's affair with Bathsheba. I think we're familiar with that story Uh, very briefly in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David is at home in the palace. His armies are fighting foreign wars. One night he's out in the palace on the roof and he's looking out and he sees a woman, a beautiful woman bathing, calls one of his servants over to find out who that woman is. Oh, that's Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of his captains, one of his bodyguards, very noble man who was away at war sends his servant to, 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 to bring her to the palace. He seduces her. They are intimate together. After a time, she tells him, I'm pregnant. So in order to cover the pregnancy, 
he calls back Uriah from the front, from the war, and brings him home and says, so how are things going with the war? Give me a report, blah, blah, blah. Well, why don't you just go home now and have a, you know, have a nice supper, be with your wife, thinking, well, he'll spend the night with his wife. He's been away for a long time. They'll be intimate. That'll cover up the pregnancy. Well, you know, Uriah is an honorable man. And what does he say to the king when the king says, why don't you go home to your wife? He says, how could I go home and sleep in my own bed with my wife when my men are out there at war? They're fighting for their lives. I'm not going to go home and sleep in comfort. So what does he do? He sleeps on the doorstep of the palace. Second night, David <laughs> this time plies him with liquor, tries to get him to drink you know, some wine. Now go home. You, know, you deserve it. You know? No, he refuses. So what does David do? He writes a message to this man's superior officer that says, when this guy comes back and the fighting is the fiercest, put him in the front line. Put him in the most dangerous place. And, and, and of all things, he writes this command, wraps it up and gives it to Uriah. Uriah is delivering his own death sentence to his commanding officer who obeys the king. Puts him in the front line. Uriah is killed. David takes the woman as his wife, brings her into the palace. The child dies. And I'm, I'm skipping a bit ahead of myself here. It brings her into the palace and then Nathan, the prophet, confronts David and tells him you know, he knows what he did. You're wrong. You did wrong. So on and so forth. David repents realizes I have been wrong. This was a bad thing I did. Uh, several months later, the baby is born and dies. He nevertheless takes Bathsheba. She becomes his wife. She becomes pregnant once again. And the second child that she has with David is none other than Solomon, who becomes king. All right. So this psalm was written by David as a result of that experience. For a year he remained unrepentant, but after he was confronted by Nathan concerning his sins, he pours out his heart before God in this penitential song. So verses one to nine, a cry for forgiveness. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. So God has continued to love him despite his sins. And this is what his appeal is based on. It is God's steadfast love that gives us the hope to even come before God to ask for forgiveness. Let's face it. What did David do? A. Committed adultery. B. 
conspired to have a man killed. I think that's called premeditated murder. C, cover up. He covered it up. Each crime that he committed okay, uh, 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 brought the death penalty. He should have been executed for what he had done. He should have lost the throne for what he had done and her too, according to Jewish law. But God spared him. It is his attitude of humility in acknowledging his personal guilt that allows him to come forth before God. I want you to notice just a technical thing here, you know, the, the technical thing about the writing of the poetry. Note the synonymous ideas for forgiveness in this song. In verse one, blot out. In verse two, wash me. In verse two, cleanse me. Verse seven, purify me. Verse nine, hide, hide you know, away from my sins. Verse 10, create a clean heart. Verse 11, do not cast me away. Do not take your spirit away. All things that have to do with being a sinner and being forgiven. Restore me in verse 12. Deliver me in verse 14. I want you to also notice something. I'm going to double back to verse 5 here. Notice in verse five, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Uh, This passage, among others, has been used to sustain the idea of original sin. The Catholic idea of original sin. People are born. They're already guilty of sin. They've inherited it from their parents. And for this reason, it justifies um, infant uh, baptism. And when this scripture is used to support that idea is completely out of context. This is a a case where you have an idea and you're just searching around for a scripture to support your idea. That's not good Bible. You have to first first take what the scripture actually says and what it means and then build your teaching, not the other way around. And so here David um, acknowledges in this verse that he has been a sinner all of his life. That's his point. I was brought forth in iniquity. He was a sinner and his mother, when she gave birth, she was a sinner. That's what he's acknowledging. In his cry for forgiveness, David acknowledges that he is and always has been a sinner and that he is responsible for sinning grievously against God, and God is justified in judging and condemning him. So he cries out to God for forgiveness and cleansing, for he knows that God wants him to be pure, and that he has a gracious and forgiving nature. He has a yes face. You know what a yes face is, right? That's the the face you want if you're facing the judge with the a bad speeding ticket. You know, you, or that's the face you want of someone who's going to interview you for a job. Or a supervisor who's going to review your, uh, your record for possible promotion. You want a yes face. You want that attitude that you know, is positive, that is kind, you know, something. Because some people have a no face. Right? No is stamped all over their face. You know, it's like, uh-oh. I remember when I worked for Bristol Myers as a sales rep and my job was to go to the headquarters of these big chain stores you know, and present new products to the buyers. 
and you had some buyers that had a no face. You could, you could have twisted yourself into a pretzel and offered them the best deal in the world and they would say no. I mean, they, it was no. You hadn't even sat down yet. And then you had others, you know, they, they were just disposed, kind. You know, they had a yes face. You're saying, well, I've got a chance with this guy. And so God has a yes face. And that's what David is saying here. I know how you are. That's why I'm coming to you. All right, let's keep going in verse 10 to 12. Let's go forward. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So he, here, remember the, uh, the order of our penitential psalm? A cry for help, an explanation, of, of, of what he's done and so on. And then the part where he is more, the third part where the, the writer is more specific about what he needs. So here he states his condition and his needs. He needs a new and responsive heart which will desire to do God's will with enthusiasm. And this suggests here what the problem was to begin with. What was the problem to begin with? Well, he didn't have a responsive heart to God's law and his purpose. True repentance and acknowledgement of sin brings forgiveness and this brings renewal. You know, we only hurt ourselves when we refuse to respond to the Spirit. When the Spirit of God inside of you is moving you to acknowledge your fault, to seek repentance and you keep saying no, that's not a good thing. 13 to 17, very quickly, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So here you get the resolution. I need forgiveness, God, because I've done this and I am guilty and I know that you're a good God and so on and so forth. And then he says, and here's what I really need. I need a new heart. I need to want to do what is right, not just have to do what is right. And then he finishes with the resolution. He makes the resolution for the kind of life he will live if he is forgiven. What will he do? He's going to teach other sinners about God's love and forgiveness in verse 13. He's going to praise God for his loving kindness, verse 14, 15. He's going to remain humble and obedient in the future, verse 16 and 17. Finishing off, verse 18, he says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This section was added later as witness to the returning exiles who were also guilty, you know, the exiles that went into Babylon for 70 years and then came back. This was also added to a witness them that God's forgiveness was made evident by their restoration to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of that city. In other words, um, um, uh, David's sin of unfaithfulness and disobedience was also repeated 
on a national scale by the Israelites who went after false gods and God punished them. 70 years they went off into exile and finally they came back. So an addition here is added to this particular Psalm in reference to these people. If God for, in other words, if God forgave David and restored him, God also forgave these unfaithful Israelites and restored them back to Jerusalem so that they could be, rebuild the, uh, the temple and the walls. Okay, one more little uh, shorter one here. Uh, this one here is verse 30, uh, Psalm 32. This is, so Psalm 51, penitential Psalm asking for forgiveness. Okay. Psalm 32, another penitential song, but this one, the joy that an individual experiences when they are forgiven. So one asks for forgiveness and talks about that. This one talks about the joy of actually being forgiven. So in, and this one is written by David too. Okay, five minutes, we can do it. In Psalm 51, David promised the Lord that he would spend the rest of his life telling others of God's salvation so that sinners might be converted. This psalm gives the account of that effort and retells the story of his restoration from a more intimate perspective, more personal perspective here. So let's begin reading verse one and two. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Parallelism there. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what is he talking? He's not calling out for something. He's proclaiming the blessedness of forgiveness. Note the synonym. Forgiveness, impute iniquity, charged with sin. So he's saying happiness comes when there is knowledge that God has forgiven, will not condemn, has covered over the sin, and when the person does not try to hide or make excuses for his sins. Verse three to five, he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the condition that forgiveness is granted not by excusing or concealing. This only brings guilt and sickness, not in stubbornness, but in humility. What does he say? Boy, I hung on to my sin. I was stubborn. I was pigheaded. I didn't acknowledge what I had done wrong. And what happened to me? I fell ill. (laughs) I was wasting away. I was depressed. And then finally, you know, I finally coughed it up. This was wrong. I was wrong. Uh, And then I started to, to be better. Only by openly acknowledging our sin can we be forgiven. Grace covers sins that we don't know about. That's wonderful. And it covers the ones that we do know about and we struggle with. That's wonderful. But but it does not cover the ones we know about and stubbornly refuse to acknowledge or let go. Grace doesn't go that far. Verse 6 to 11. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. 
Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, there it is, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all, you, all of you who are upright in heart. So remember he said, if I'm forgiven, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to tell everybody how wonderful you are. I'm going to tell everybody about your forgiveness. Well, here it is. In this psalm, you see him doing exactly that. God will answer and protect all of those who call upon him in prayer, but he rejects those who are stubborn and refuse to come near. Why does he say that? Because that's what happened to him. He was stubborn. He didn't acknowledge it. He tried to hide it. He tried to cover it and he suffered for it. And then finally, when he acknowledged it, his life got better. So he's preaching to others now. That's what he's saying. So here is the contrast between repentant and unrepentant. One is teachable and he comes near to God and the other, like a mule, needs to be subdued with harsher measures. Those who trust in God, he says, to forgive will be rewarded with forgiveness and a renewed spirit and joy and those who don't will be surrounded by trouble. So forgiveness, he's saying here, is a joyful thing but is only obtained through honest, humble acknowledgement of personal sin and trust in a loving and merciful God. Man, this, this is a wonderful psalm. We've zoomed, we've zoomed through it. I've just wanted to show you the contrast between the two. One where he's talking about sin in general and asking for forgiveness. And this one here where he tells his own story, a kind of a witness, what happened to him and how things turned out in his life. All right, just let me summarize. Penitential psalms are personal cries to God for help in time of illness and trouble. The authors most times saw the relationship between their own sins and the troubles that they suffered and asked forgiveness along with the relief of the trials that they were suffering. Forgiveness was always possible from God who was loving and merciful to even the vilest of sinners, but an honest repentance was what he required later. Remind me later, there we go. So summary, penitential psalms, right? Begin with a cry for help. They state the problem in detail and then they renew the request for help, but a little more specifically. What kind of help do they need? I need a clean heart. I need you to get rid of my enemies. I need you to take away my illness and so on and so forth. 